Empathy. How many times have you heard this word? In a business context, cultural context or political context. With the rise of technology, that in many ways, it seems that isolates us even more. We need empathy. Today's speaker, Elif Gogchidem, will speak about how museums and art can help us develop empathy. How she got with her idea to the Dalai Lama and what it means to design for empathy. Let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain. between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is... is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us. 2020 was a year that invited so many turns and twists. For many of us, the pandemic was and still a life-changing event. The massive economic shift, behavior shift, and even political shift have shown us that there is now more than ever a real need to become more empathetic in life and at work. Empathy can create a better society. It can create a better companies. Empathy can make us better leaders. It can elevate customers' experience and it can encourage creativity. What might be surprising is that empathy can be learned. And as Elif, today's guest, will explain, it needs to be intentional. And why I'm excited? Because she explained how art and museum can play a role. Hey Elif, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Hi Nir, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. I know it's too cold now in Washington. Or where are you located? I'm near Washington, D.C. So, yeah, I remember correctly. Great. Elif, maybe before we kind of start to speak about this exciting topic of art and empathy, maybe you can introduce yourself shortly. Sure. I'm Elif Gökçidem, and I'm the founder of two initiatives. One is called Empathy Building Through Museums Initiative, and then the second one is a pan- status-pending organization called ONE, Organization of Networks for Empathy. Great. So you already understand, our listeners, that we are going to speak about empathy and how art can actually foster it. And maybe kind of, Elif, just to set the context to everyone, what is empathy? Empathy is our ability to feel like another. It helps us to imagine what it would be like to be the other. I think there is a kind of a very nice anecdote that I don't know if most of our listeners know, but empathy, at least in its modern kind of meaning, actually started in the world of art. Can you elaborate on that? That is true. In late 1900s, actually 1800s, 1890s, the word empathy came from the German word Einfühlung, and it was first used in the context of art, feeling into an inanimate object, uh, like such as an uh, artwork. And later it was translated into English in uh, early 1900s as empathy, the word empathy, and it was started used in the context of feeling like another human being and so our ability to connect in general. It's kind of very interesting that everyone speaks about empathy and obviously it has its own Latin Greek origin, but to think about the modern world that actually starts with art, it's something that kind of makes it very, very nice anecdote. And one of the things that I often hear is that 
people want to develop empathy. They want to foster empathy. And I'm very much interested because that's your day to day. Can empathy be taught or maybe foster or home? What do you think? So empathy has an evolving meaning, actually, over the last century, so to speak. And uh, only in 1990s, in Italy, through an experiment, we found out that are the, the mirror neurons in our brain is where empathy or our ability to connect with another emotional level occurs. And uh, since then, studies have been done on, you know, how we perceive each other, how we connect, and how we even interact with the artwork. And, and all those findings suggest that empathy can be learned and almost like exercise like a muscle. Uh, like any other muscle in our bodies. So it is usually accepted that we all come with empathy as an innate ability that we, it's almost like an instinct. But empathy is very complex. It has, you know, many layers and nuances. So to make it more sophisticated and uh, sort of gear it towards a greater good or the whole, you know, like not just empathy that looks like people that look like me or believe in exactly what I believe to expand it to even like animals, environment, or our planet itself, it requires uh, exercise. And science tells us that, yes, we can exercise it, uh, foster it. Great. So first of all, I really love it. What did you just said? It, empathy is actually a skill that we can develop. And later in our conversation, I would like to hear how you actually do it in museums. It actually can be done. Now, I'm very much interested, what attracted you to the world of empathy? How did you find yourself looking and exploring and fostering and starting an organization around empathy, writing books about empathy? What led you there? It's, it's a very personal story, actually. I mean, I my background is art history. And in art history, you know, we, read, we study art psychology. In that context, we also learn about the relationship of art and empathy and, you know, how what the aesthetic experience is, you know, what happens after an artwork is produced and it leaves the artist's hands and, you know, it's out in the world and what it generates then, you know, what kind of reaction it causes in the viewer, that sort of thing. But my journey is actually, I had a very personal experience. I had a sort of like a, a transcendent experience in uh, 2006. And after that experience, I couldn't see the world the same way I used to before. And the more I thought about it, the more I tried to you know, understand and articulate it in words, everything, all sort of channels, you know, pointed me to empathy, our ability to connect and imagine what it would feel like to be another. But this wasn't really in the context of just human beings, but like all, all everything, all beings around us. So my experience was more related to oneness, oneness of all beings. And when I sort of broke it down to like smaller parts, it boiled down to a very simple ability that we each have, which is empathy. But how can we then make it more sophisticated, you know, expand it? It is related to our uh, fulfillment of our humanness in a way, uh, to be able to see the world that way as a whole that, you know, that of which we are all a part. So I thought empathy would be a great start. And since then, I've been 
on a journey to better understand and learn and experience and promote empathy. Great, great. So I guess listeners are already kind of interested to learn how you do it, but be patient and we will go into some examples. But one of the ways that uh, you suggest is actually using museums. And in 2016, you published your first book, Fostering Empathy Through Museums. For the listeners that cannot see, Leif now just show us the, the book, but we will put the links or add the links on our social media and the website after uh, the show. So you actually uh, published this book, Fostering Empathy Through Museum, that includes 15 case studies with clear takeaways, ideas and lessons learned by professionals in the field, how museums actually develop and employ empathy. So over here, I have Three steps, questions. First, I want to hear why museums. Second, I want to hear how museums do it. And then what actually we can gain from it. So I'm interested, why do you think museums are a great place to foster, hone and develop empathy? I'm just going to go like one step backwards and related to the previous question. After my experience, you know, I was filled with sort of urge to do something with what I now learned, you know, and but I also felt very powerless because I'm an individual. I don't have big powers or, you know, networks or anything like that. Who would even listen to what I have to say? I mean, this is so important. I at least have to be able to articulate it to my children and show them how this could be done. And I said, so what do I know about in life? And then that brought me back, you know, I, I've studied art history, I've studied museums, and I work at a company and, you know, all the parts that make me who I am said, okay, now you have to do with what, whatever you have in hand, but you must do something. So that directed me to museums. And of course, you know, because of my background, I knew that museums and art are related, but my project is not only about art, it's a way of looking at the world. So using objects to teach people a different way of looking at the world uh, through which we can find our interconnectedness and our place in this like, greater uh, whole. And, and uh, when I started you know, doing my research, I looked at all museums, including children's museums, arts museums, science, natural history, civil rights, to see if anybody has done any work on this intentionally. And what I found was that, uh, of course, I mean, it happens. Empathy happens every day. It's like this byproduct of our humanity, right? But we don't necessarily articulate it, point it out that like, this is what happens and this is empathy and this is what you can do with it. And I thought museums could be a great place because they are informal learning platforms. They are learning platforms, but you don't have to take a test at the end. Yeah. You know, you learn at your own pace. You know, there's no teacher telling you, no, you're wrong or you're right. You're really literally like all you have to do is just slow down, take it all in, uh, reflect all the changes, the feelings and the sensations that's happening inside you in any object, in front of any object, sort of using like objects as mirrors to understand ourselves. You know, in your, in your answers, I already thought about a few things that relates to what we try to communicate in this podcast. And as you just mentioned, you're individual, but you didn't stop you from actually trying. And it's kind of uh, this characteristic that I recognize among artists and entrepreneurs that you work with what you have. It's not what we don't have. We need to actually take advantage of what we have. And even though you are one person... You can create a change. Maybe it won't come as a wave, but as a small one that bring another one and another one. And maybe hopefully we will get to the 
point that you organized an empathy summit with the Dalai Lama. So it's one person that managed to do it. It's wonderful. So you mentioned about these wider museums, but now I'm very much interested in how museums actually are using it. And you mentioned five ways that museums can foster empathy. And I'm very much interested to hear what are those five ways. Thank you. Thank you. This is very interesting because, you know, when I started out with the book, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I've carefully selected the case studies that lead to empathy, you know, like the, all the research that's connected to what I was trying to create, you know, the, in terms of my vision of using empathy, using museums for empathy building. But I really wasn't sure, you know, how people would react and whether something concrete would come out of it. And, and what happened was that I found that out that, you know, most museums have been empathy in different ways. But they were not really intentional about it. And when I asked them, so, yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, have you done, have you really looked deeper into this? They were like, oh, you know, like we, no, you know, we called it something else. Or, you know, we never looked at it that way. It wasn't really there. And then actually that taught me that, you know, these things are all related, you know, empathy, creativity, compassion, kindness. So it helps to be flexible in our understanding of empathy and what it can be. So at the end of the book, I was approached by this uh, sort of newsletter and they said, oh, you have to just, you know, send us a, like a 1500 word <laughs> bloggers, you know, uh, something like a write up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, what do I do? Then I said, <laughs> OK, well, maybe I can break it down that way. And that helps me articulate to anybody that yes. you know, like these are the ways to do it, you know? So that's what happened. And what I found is that from, from all the variety of museums and within those museums from different perspectives, for example, from the curator's perspective, from the museum director's perspective, from an archivist's perspective or an exhibition designer's perspective, I found out that collectively there are five ways to, that museums can foster empathy. One is by just being the space for that encounter, creating a safe space for everyone in a non-judgmental way to come in and slow down and be with themselves and what is uh, in front of them. And this can create also uh, a safe space for a dialogue. It could be a dialogue within yourself or with another or the group of people. One second, one second, Elif, I want to ask you something. So you mentioned the fact that museum can be a safe space. What would you recommend to a listener that go to a museum and actually want to use this space? What are one or two or three questions that they need to ask themselves in order to be able to practice it while they are in the space? Do you have some recommendations? I don't have a, really a prescription because each person is different and we come at this at different levels. So at the heart of it, it's all about an intention. I'm intent on like, building my empathy and teaching myself to look at the world in a different way where I can discover my connection to this greater unity that I'm a part of. Then I can use anything. But museums are a space, you know, it just provides you a with a destination. You can do the same thing by going out in the nature and just observing a tree or a plant growing up. Or just look at a child, you know, like it can be anything. But museums is, you know, they are already here. And there are these big institutions where we can go and, you know, with the, you know, like intention is also a little bit uh, related to rituals, right? You have to make an effort to get there, you know, like something happens and then <laughs> there's a conclusion, you know, that sort of thing. That helps in our learning. So that's why they're readily available that we can use them. 
And there are ways to do that and, you know, like perspective taking and there are uh, increasingly more courses available online and through different museums on site. Now that everywhere is closed, but this approach is becoming more of a, a trend, I think, because it is known also that it leads to healing in a way. It is not just about looking at the world, but why do I have to, why do I care if I'm part of something greater than I'm myself? It, it helps, it makes, makes us feel whole you know, it makes us feel connected and it's related to healing and well-being too. So the first one is actually the fact that they are safe space. What are the other ways that we can look at museums? So it, they can be uh, also spaces for dialogue, encounter things or people or ideas that you wouldn't normally encounter in your everyday life. So that's also another thing. And then you can learn through experiences in a museum. Not all museums offer this, but mostly science museums and children's museums and art museums too. They allow you to do something while you're in the museum. So play is an important part of learning because play is sort of like a, going into play, we are somewhat vulnerable because we don't know what the outcome and we are courageous at the same time because we want to experience that engagement. Those are all ingredients which are actually the topic of the second book. So we talked about, you know, safe space, dialogue, experiential learning. I wanted to ask you, because I think that art brings a lot of storytelling. So how do you see it uh, here? Exactly. So storytelling is very important because before even writing was invented, we transferred our wisdom, our traditions and survival techniques, you know, through stories. And, and this was all verbal and maybe through some art form also in the early humans. And again, like empathy, it is almost like an instinct, like it's inherently there that we learn things, anything by stories. And museums are natural storytellers because they have these collections, right, objects, and they're always trying to find ways to create stories around them and use the stories of the objects or their connections between them to make themselves relevant to society. Like this is what we have to offer to you. So this is a great opportunity for us to see how a storytelling can be done and also create our own stories, make our own meaning, you know, not just rely on what is said on a museum text, but think and research and make our own meaning, basically. And if we tell that experience to another, we are also contributing to that story of that object. You know, it just goes on and on. And that maybe leads me to the fifth way of you know, how museums can foster empathy is through contemplation. So at the end of each of these experiences, it helps to just take the time to reflect on and intentionally just see, you know, what took place, how I reacted to it. It is not so much about like in the old ways. I mean, how I grew up, you know, when we went to museums, it was about to learn about history or that object. And the object was everything. What I'm suggesting is that let's use those to learn about ourselves, our own humanness, how we look at things. Did I learn something surprising about that object, but about myself? I think only then we really take those learnings to heart because they affect us personally and at an emotional level. And then we take them outside the museum walls to real life, to everyday life and see how it manifests itself in other ways. You're talking about that and I start to reflect. The research shows that most of the people spend around 20 seconds in front of the most famous paintings, including the Mona Lisa. In the last few years, it's actually increased to 30 seconds. 
And the reason is that people take more time to take the selfie. When I'm listening to you, I, I want to give our listener kind of maybe exercise. That next time that you look at a painting, ask yourself, what surprised me? What did he tell me about myself? Because I think what's beautiful about art is that often art is open-ended. So we can create our own story. And one of the things that I always recommend also people that uh, I speak with, don't read the text to the side. Try first to understand what you see, not what the text tells you to see. You have a beautiful story about the calligraphy, which I want to hear. But before that, let's take a short break. Hi, listeners. It's clear that our speakers are at the intersection of art and innovation, but they didn't just arrive there casually. They developed their skills, gained knowledge, and more importantly, grew their artistic mindset. Would you like to develop some of these skills, capabilities, or a growth mindset? Then I would encourage you to check our art-based learning experiences. Whether you want to build your leadership skills or your innovation competencies, our training can be just what you are looking for. Visit us at www.theartian.com. That is T-H-E-A-R-T-I-A-N.com to learn more. So Elif, we just spoke about the five ways that museums can actually foster empathy. We spoke about uh, contemplation and storytelling and learning experiences, safe space. And you have one story that I really like that you talked about the calligraphy and how words actually describe the prophet. And it's an audience that is not familiar to the calligraphy. Can you share this story? I really loved it when I read it. My background is the history of Islamic art. And I've noticed that in museums, as they are looking more into empathy building, they're mostly using Western art as entry points. To, so I felt like maybe this is something that I can look into and see you know, what, I, what I can come up with. So I was influenced by uh, my colleague who helped me develop this idea with uh, her experience in science, of behavioral science, uh, Dr. Zorana Ivsevich uh, at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and uh, Eliana Grossman. That time she was a graduate student there. And so they, we collaborated and they came up with this really interesting format for approaching an artwork. And in that format, they, similar to what you suggested, you know, like, don't, you know, like, read the text first, just, you know, get, think about the first emotional reaction. So there are three prompts, right? And, you know, the first prompt is just look at the art object and jot down your emotional reaction, whatever that may be. And then each prompt reveals a little bit more information about that artwork. And at the end, it ties, everything ties into something very personal at the end everybody in the room feels. And it is, words really do not do any justice to this. <laughs> you just have to experience it because it is different with every artwork. So I said, okay, maybe I can do something like this with the Islamic art. But in Islamic art in general, in the traditional Islamic arts, figural imagery is only in book paintings, illustrated, you know, books that are for, you know, the sultans or the wealthy or the people who can read, basically, and not so common in everyday life. Through a, a calligraphy teacher, I came across with this piece. It's a verbal portrait of the Prophet Muhammad. And without saying anything about the artwork, I first posed that as an example and say, you know, just tell me, you know, how you feel. How does it feel when you first encounter this object? And it varies with according to the audience. 
some people say, oh, you know, I felt like it's like music, you know, because calligraphy has that rhythm to it. And you don't really need to understand the words. It is better if you understand the words, but you don't have to. It is that kind of art form that reached at that level through, you know, hundreds of years. And some people say, oh my gosh, you know, what is this? It is some kind of a, like a propaganda or something, you know, like, I don't want to know about this. It is really interesting how people react to it emotionally. You read it to them? No, no. The first, first time I showed them the, the piece. Just show the letters. Just, just the piece, you know, with the, the, I wish I had brought it. It's right here next to me, but I don't want to uh, take the time now. And then the second, you know, prompt is reveal a little bit more information about the object, which is basically what would say normally in a museum text, like circa this and this, you know, year, artist name and a work on paper uh, with ink or something like that, you know, it really doesn't do any justice to what I'm looking at. So through prompts, each time as you reveal, people get curious, they want to know more. And that actually just that making them a little bit frustrated through this ex experience, they get to articulate what they need to know. And what else do I need to know? And that makes them think and you know, make an effort. It's creates an effort. And that effort they remember because they are frustrated. So that's a part of the whole experience. It's not so much about, you know, what the text says or, you know, who created this object, what I feel about, why did I first feel this, you know, like awe, for example, when I looked at it, or why I was so like put away with this, you know, like I don't want to even see those kind of letters because they remind me of other things. But at the end, because this is a safe space, there's no judgments and everybody can speak what's on their minds. Eventually, people understand that those are biases that we all come with. It is a way of our looking at the world, not just, and this art object just brought it to the surface, basically. It helped us you know, articulate it. And at the end, you know, I say, you know, they're really frustrated now. They really want to know what the text <laughs> is, right? You know, <laughs> would you like to read? Would you like me to read it to you? And they said, yes, you know, already. So I translated. I read the translation of the entire text, and the, even the, the text of those types of calligraphic pieces, you know, the, they are called hilie, are uh, a very different way of describing a person. It is not just an ordinary verbal portrait. It's the portraiture of a character of an individual rather than a physical description. Not so much about, you know, about his skin color or how his hair looked like. Those are also mentioned, but within that cultural context, each would have meant something to tell you about something about that person's character and values. So it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So we never really go very deep, but it is just sort of like scratching the surface. Yeah, it's amazing. You're talking and again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking and you know, it's like, uh, you know, in my world, entrepreneurship world, business world, we always think about empathy and we need to understand customers, etc. But often customers don't know what they want, what they see. And this exercise that you just mentioned that, you know, this actually this frustration that uh, make them kind of relate to the process to try to How can we identify this frustration? How can we tackle this frustration? How can we create this frustration in order to make them more engaged in the process? So you took it one step further. And in 2019, you actually published another book. And this time, Designing for Empathy, Perspective on the Museum Experiences. And yeah, I see that the cover also is a design with all the Arabic letters. Yes? Uh, they're actually Ottoman letters. They're Arabic 
letters, but it's Ottoman Turkish. Okay. Now you start to speak about empathy with intention. What does it mean for you designing for empathy? Why do you think we need to design for empathy? So what I learned from this whole experience of writing a book, also presenting at conferences, and at that point, I also started creating a community around this topic because everybody was intrigued and they wanted to collaborate and know more. Basically, we are learning together. You know, it's not like I know everything. We are just learning together. That's the whole thing. was apparent was that, you know, we were really taking this for granted, taking empathy for granted. So it is like the oxygen. It's very similar to what we are doing to our planet, right? I mean, we are taking oxygen for granted. We are cutting down trees and making everywhere concrete and really not paying attention to biodiversity and all those things until there will be a moment like we are experiencing now, like a pandemic and climate change and all those things. All of a sudden, it comes back and finds us where we live. We are each individually affected by all those things because everything is connected. <laughs> I mean, it was clear that we have never really looked at education that way. We always, you know, um, sort of valued you know, knowledge or expertise in, in a certain area uh, or technical abilities. And, and all those are very, very important, of course. But there, it's equally important is that are we training people about what to do with that knowledge or expertise, how to use it? Are we training people enough in a, through a worldview that, that shows everyone, makes them understand intellectually and emotionally that we are a part of one? So whatever goes around comes around. So if I'm creating a project or product or if I'm you know, typing a social media post, it affects a whole bunch of things. And eventually it comes back to us. You know, it's like the old type of wisdom, right? What goes around comes around. It is... That's very true. Yeah, it's interesting that many religions have the same concept. The karma, what goes around, comes around. It's like, yeah. Exactly. So why don't we then, you know, design for empathy intentionally and really look into like how we could make this education a reality? Is it an education? Is it a facilitation? You know, like bringing up something that's already in us. But there, eventually, the more we um, sort of invest in these types of tools and programs, you know, like workshops, there are varying qualities of these experiences, right? So we want to make sure that there are also certain standards and best practices in this field so that not everyone can come up with this, like, sort of like, oh, I'm an empath. I can read your mind, you know, like, <laughs> and so, so can you, you know, give me $1,000 and I'll show you how, you know. Yeah that's not what this is all about, right? We are trying to sort of unlock something within us to really like to help us real our humanity, humanness at the end. Because the more empathy leads to compassion and kindness and altruism, and the more we act those ways, it it releases endorphins in our brains. So we want to repeat so it creates this infinite cycle, you know, it's like empathy, compassion, altruism, you know, like, and that sense of fulfillment because you feel good and you want to repeat. So that's the type of cycle. And there's no really reward. Nobody pats you on the shoulder. Oh, you've been really empathetic today. You know, that's not what this is about. It's not about rewards. It's just a way of being. So to do that, I mean, that's sort of like the ultimate vision, right? I wish. <laughs> yeah. Empathy is a way of being. I like it. I think it should be a quote, empathy is a way of being. And how do you suggest to do it? I mean, you definitely have some ideas. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, so going back to the research in hand, you know, like all those contributions of all those authors and, you know, their case studies, what inspired me was to really look into deeper in each of those, like the five ways that we discussed, how do they come about? You know, we call it storytelling, but storytelling has many components in it. To have a really great storytelling experience, there are certain things in hand and they are designed. By design, they are there. I mean, it could be a great movie or it could be really like listening to a story from your like uh, grandmother. I mean, there's this trust, there's this space, you know, undivided attention. There's intentionality. There's manners. You listen, right? You pay attention. And then there's also vulnerability because you don't know. You just trust that person, whatever they have to say. And you, because you trust and they have been a, maybe a you know, trusted role model in your entire life, you believe and you internalize the, the learnings, you know, the wisdom of the story, you know, or the moral of the story. So, and these are not entirely easy, you know, like they, they are not easily available everywhere. Those of us who are lucky to have been raised in those environments, in those, you know, loving families or communities, it comes easier for them to feel this way, to know, oh yeah, I know what I mean, what you mean. But most of the people around the world where, you know, people are on a survival mode on a daily basis, these things are not easy to achieve. So empathy in that case, it becomes a human right because it can lead us to fulfill our humanity. We have to really intentionally design those spaces where everyone can unlock the empathy in them because it leads to creativity, innovation, sense of fulfillment, compassion, all those things. It is almost like a human right to just be able to create those platforms where everyone can come in and discover for themselves in their own pace what, it, what that means for them. Elif, you know, now that you were talking, uh, it reminded me of well-known manager, CEO and business manager. His name is Bob Chapman. And he said that what he learned in his business school was to manage, not to lead. And until he wasn't a father, he didn't change his way because he started to ask himself why we treat our employees in that way, but to our children in a different way. What will happen if managers will start to look at their employees like their children and they want them to succeed, and they want them to feel good, and they want them to fulfill themselves. And then we will have a much better business working environment that occupies probably two-thirds of our lives. So for the listeners that want to do it, I want to hear from you, what would you suggest them to do when they want to design for empathy? What are your rules or suggestions that you will give? That very question in mind, you know, I suggested in my second book, Designing for Empathy, a framework for how to design for empathy. This is just a conversation starter. As I said before, I don't claim to have the prescription. I'm learning as I go. But I suggest that, you know, there are, seems like three main components to empathy or empathy building and what it leads to. But at the heart of it, it is the intentionality. But even before that, we have to answer the question of what is the object of our empathy? What are we trying to empathize with? You know, what is the other in our empathy? And that can be a human, it can be a product, it can be an animal, it can be everything? It could be everything, anything. But I suggest that, and I had a, actually sort of an intention to bring this, include this in the conversation is that can we empathize with our oneness? with the whole of which we are all a part. 
So I think that's like the, because that sort of encapsulates everything, right? If we really fragment our object of empathy, it will be many things. And still they would be useful in their own way, but we also have to think how this would affect the whole. So it is always good to keep in mind, you know, how this will lead to our unity as humanity, as our environment and as our planet. Can we go beyond our in-groups to empathy, you know, to empathize with, beyond, you know, our in-groups and empathize with those who do not look like us, who do not believe in the things that we do, who act very differently than we do, but realize that I don't have to agree with them necessarily. We can still have difference of, you know, view and opinion, but know that, you know, there's a reason why they are there too. And everybody has a reason. Everything has a reason for existence in my belief. So that's where my departure. I feel like we can empathize and we have to find ways to empathize with our oneness. So it is not just like this person, this group of people, this product, but how that really serves our unity at the end. And that question is closely related to the filters through which we view our world. So we may you know, perceive our world, let's say, through our intellect, through our ego, through our heart, through our brains, you know, like everybody and the, the science goes on and on, but, uh, and through now, you know, augmented reality, right? Artificial intelligence, that, that's becoming its own thing. So these are all filters through which we are sort of raised to like believe that like these, this is the way to look at the world. And amongst those, you know, like looking at the world through the heart is like the least explored because it is always the subject of these, you know, spiritual paths and, you know, like human development kind of thing. It, it was always considered like a soft thing. You know why I'm, why I'm laughing? Because in one of my talk that I give, I speak about artistic leaders and I use example of Steve Jobs that he, he stood on stage and, st and said that Apple's DNA is the technology and the humanities that make our hearts sing. It's in Apple's DNA that technology alone is not enough. That it's technology married with liberal arts, married with the humanities, that yields us the result that makes our hearts sing. Then you have people like Steve Jobs saying, oh, my heart is singing. And I love it when you say that the heart is the thing that we don't explore that often. I love it. Yeah. I love it. No, thank you. Thank you for, thank you, for you know, mentioning that. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote. I mean, heart is, science cannot really explain heart. I mean, it can explain it really well as a physical organ that pumps the blood you know, in our body. But there's also this heart space or whatever that is that is in our bodies. And it is sort of a, like an organ of spiritual perception. The Little Prince book, you know, you probably yeah. is the favorite of many people, and you know, like most most important things in life are invisible to eye, but only heart can see. So that type of thing, and we can go on and on. But but, <laughs> but it is important to you know really like put it on the play on the table yeah. because it is there. I mean, why why are we constantly ignoring this very important aspect? Maybe it is trying to teach us something. You know, really like knocking on our door all the time, like this, you know, the story that this guy keeps complaining to God, you know, God, you know, I never yeah, win yeah. the lottery. <laughs> it's like, you know, just buy a ticket, you know, like just, you know, look into it, you know, right? So that sort of thing. It's a conversation starter. Let's see how we, how we see the world through, our, through the eye of our heart 
can relate to our intellect and our ego, our spirit or whatever, you know, all those things that make us human. So Elif, this is the first stage, like looking what is the object, then what we should do. So the next step is that I created this list of uh, what I call the ingredients of the alchemy of empathy. <laughs> and these uh, ingredients are definitely more than what I have in the book, because in a book format, you can only list so many. But I have, I think, about 13. And these are things such as intentionality, intersectionality, proximity, storytelling, awe and wonder, play, curiosity, contemplation collective journeying, breaking bread, optimism, and hope. And there's more, of course, there's humor, there's humility, you know, like all those things, there's synchronicity. These are actually the qualities of empathy, right? Let's say in a storytelling experience, there will be, if you look at it intentionally, you will find a number of these qualities in play, in interaction with each other. So, what I'm suggesting is like, let's look at them, you know, like how they are interacting, what is taking place, because if we can articulate and name what is happening, then it becomes a thing that, you know, more people can look into it and be more intentional. And then it becomes a thing that we can then discuss, you know, is this working? Is this not working? What are the potential and the pitfalls of this particular ingredient? And then come the third stage. We have the object. We have first stage, start what is the object, second stage, alchemy of uh, empathy, the 13 uh, kind of characteristics that we need to think about when we want to design. And the most important, as you mentioned, is to do it with intention. And then come the third stage, which is? Yes, which is to what end are we doing all this work? You know, what are we really trying to do? What is this empathy can lead to? I mean, we know more and more every day that it can lead to innovation, it can lead to you know, better education, to social progress, to environmental protection, and those kinds of things. But at the end, I think they're all tied to each other, all these three parts. Even like if you're just focusing on education, are we really keeping the object of our empathy in mind? In my case, it is the oneness. Are we keeping our oneness in mind? Because if you're just talking about educating and you can really empathize with a group and educate the heck out of them on a certain subject, but how, you know, what good does that do? You know, that sort of thing. Do they want it? Do they need it? Why do we do it? What they will do with it, you know, will they be able to use it for the greater good or not? So, Elif, we are getting into the end of our podcast, but in our previous conversation, you said something that captured at least my attention, and you said that we need to design a compassionate technology. And you said that the coder today is like a poet. She is the poet of our times. What do you mean? This actually, this uh, was inspired by one of the contributors to Designing for Empathy, Amir Baradaran. And he uh, uses this metaphor, which I love. So he uses this, he writes poetry in a way that there's AI in the middle, you know, because I believe that, and I'm not a technologist, but you know what, I follow from like a regular individual, what I can see around me is that these technologies are increasingly, will be dominating our lives, but do they have the best intention for our humanness and our environment and our oneness? In a way, can we incorporate some of these thinking into the coding? So if we consider coding as a language, so is you know, poetry, right? It's a reflection of the language. But 
when we read poetry, like if we read a poem from Rumi, again, our hearts may sing, right? Can we do that with AI? I mean, can we incorporate these values and essences, what is invisible to the eye, into the coding some way that, that the end result becomes a beneficial and um, sort of a, um, good for, the, for all of us? No, I'm totally, totally with you. And I think that the movies like The Social Dilemma that now uh, runs on Netflix that speak about this destructive power of technologies just kind of uh, put a face and names to um, those phenomena that we need to be much more aware and how to think about it, as you just mentioned. And so today you actually uh, have those two books, uh, Fostering Empathy Through Museums, Designing for Empathy, Perspective on the Museum Experience. You started the uh, Summit for Empathy. You are involved in the Empathy Center in Minneapolis Museum. Just an advisor, yes. Okay. So there are other uh, kind of uh, things that you are involved that we should know about? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the uh, highlights of this whole movement is, you know, our meeting with the Dalai Lama. This place, now last 59 years, is my home. So the visitors to my home, I must express my welcome. So after the first book, I received the invitation to take uh, like 30 multidisciplinary people to meet with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama in India. And then I would I'd get to create a workshop for them to actually bring those people who would normally not come together. They're from different fields and different expertise levels and to get them to play really like a sandbox. But uh, only I could do this because, you know, The, the, our reward at the end was to meet with his holiness. <laughs> But while they were there already, you know, let's do this. And, and uh, so it was, it was a really, really amazing experience. And, and he was so inspirational and so generous with his time and, and his wisdom. Uh, it really helped us uh, all a lot, you know, and we still remember the moments and the learnings uh, from our conversation with him. And now this initiative started in museums, as we talked in the beginning, you know, because my background in museums and I had to do something, so I had to start somewhere, you know. But my goal is definitely to, to take it to a more interdisciplinary and cross-sectors approach. The ultimate goal is to be able to find enough allies so that we can create a collective um, innovation strategy for empathy and, you know, set the standards and best practices, but really involve all stakeholders in the process so that we can design better tools and processes and progress and, and then we can learn as we go along. So the, the, the latest, latest thing is that we applied for this nonprofit organization, uh, one organization of networks for empathy. I'm really hopeful that it will allow us to really partner with different types of entities, you know, corporations, academic institutions, individuals, you know, advisors to really um, expand our platform and network so that more of us can provide input and learn together. Elif, first of all, thank you very, very much. I'm very happy that we have this uh, conversation. Uh, we will make sure to have all those links and the initiatives, the books that you mentioned in the show notes. Next time you're going to meet the Dalai Lama, please count me in. I want to join. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, our listeners. We will be waiting for you 
on the next episode of the Artian podcast. Elif, thank you very, very much. Thank you. As you just heard, empathy can be developed. We can do something about it. And as Elif said, empathy is a way of being. So next time you visit a museum, take a moment to look inside you and ask yourself what it makes me feel. What emotions does it raise? And until you come back, I will be here waiting for another episode of the Artian podcast. The recording you heard were extracted from the Apple launch of the iPad in Silicon Valley in 2011, from the conversation Elif and the team had with the Dalai Lama, and from Designing for Empathy Summit. Thanks again for choosing us, listening to us, and staying with us till now. We know that with so many content out there, you chose to listen to this one. So thank you for that. We are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it's really, really valuable for us. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode and Abigail Dyson, our wonderful intern who helped us put this podcast out there. If you are interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, if you are looking to hone and develop an artistic mindset, then I would recommend you to check our workshops and training. All the information is available on our website. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I will be here waiting for you on another episode of The Artian Podcast. Thank you.